agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined today by Lawrence Jacobs, the founder and director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, and holds the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair for Political Studies at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Today, Larry is joining me to discuss his most recent work, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History, which is available now from Oxford University Press. Welcome to the Politics Guys, Larry, and thank you so much for joining me and for the book. Oh, it's great to be with you. I'm a big fan of what you do, and this is exactly the kind of serious conversation that we need. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I love about this job is the chance to take a look at upcoming new work, uh, especially from fellow political scientists. And normally the first question that I ask everyone is to kind of summarize the book. But before I get that, I've actually got a different question for you first, because when I unwrapped your book, the very first thing I noticed, which is different generally from any other academic tome, which was your cover art. <laughs> uh, you have you know this this picture of Donald Trump for for listeners. It's Donald Trump and his hair is coming up and basically part of fire in the background. And and I and I was just curious, w- were you the origin for this? It was one of the most striking uh, scholarly images that I think I have seen in a decade. Yeah, you're good. smart to start there. My wife was a novelist, Julie Schumacher, and. Uh, she was the one behind it. <laughs> she told my she told my publisher, "It's like, let's get people to read this book. It's a good book, uh, but let's pop it off the shelf." Um, so I was kind of steered. I am a geek, so most of my covers are, you know, two or three colors alone. <laughs> No, well, I, I think your wife did excellent work here. I I loved it. As a matter of fact, we we passed it around the office a little bit because, again, you know, as you've noted, this felt much more like that novel cover. So I didn't realize. So your wife is a novelist as well. Yeah, she's been a New York Times bestseller. Uh, dear committee members. Uh, it won a bunch of awards, and it's a great read. Okay, well, other things I'm going to have to to, to read. Okay, so I, I do want to get back. I, I loved that in part because it's just so catchy, and, and I think it kind of then flows into this next question I have for you. So obviously, our listeners have not uh, read your book yet like I have. So if you were going to sum it up in, in the quick version, how would you sum that up for listeners? America has a very weird idea of democracy. And a big part of our idea of democracy is that primaries choose who the nominees are. Everywhere else that has a democracy, it's not like that. The party leaders choose who the candidates will be. And the question is, why has that happened in America? And what are the consequences? My argument, and this book ended up going back to the 1700s, is that we have ended up really damaging our democracy because power over who is nominated has shifted to a relatively small number of people, maybe a quarter or a third during presidential election years, which is the high point. And those folks are not like the rest of us. They tend to be fairly extreme, particularly on the right, but also more liberal uh, than most Americans and even most Democrats. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, early on, one of the one of the pieces that got me, this is early, I think, page three, you say that Trump is not an aberration, but a predicted result of the nomination process that sidelined party officials. And the main reason being uh, the Democratic Party reforms uh, in 1969 and 1970. Uh, so, I mean, I think one of the other bits of this is, is you know, that sounds relatively uh, tame, but you're making a pretty bold prediction that I don't want to say bold, but you're, you're, the, the prediction here is is that we shouldn't be surprised by Trump, but rather that 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 this lack of elite involvement is in fact a predictor of Trump. Am I right about that? Yeah, exactly. It's been, you know, the, the primary was first introduced in a large scale about a century ago. And when it was introduced, it was part of what was known as the progressive era reform movement. Um, and you had people like Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin and, and others who said this was going to save our democracy. But what was interesting is there were progressive reformers, including very prominent thought leaders like Herbert Crowley and Walter Littman, who said, no, actually, the primary would set back democracy because it was going to hand power to these infidious um, uh, factions and would open the door to demagogues. And so the primary uh, momentum was stopped in the 1920s. It wasn't until the 19, early 1970s that it was picked up and the warnings were forgotten. And the warnings predicted Donald Trump. And by the way, the first sign of a demagogue getting through the primaries was, was George Wallace in 1972, where he was really in an excellent position to prevail and become the Democratic Party nominee. And the leaders of the Democratic Party, as is the case with the leaders of the Republican Party in 2016, were powerless to stop them because power had been shifted over who the nominee will be. Yeah, is, I love that you're tracing of that history, right? So in, in part one, you effectively go way back. I mean, and sometimes I feel like we're always going back to that period of the revolution. We can talk more about that as well. But then you move forward to that progressive era, as you've talked about, and maybe the 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 overlooking of the problems of primaries, because obviously the reason that we pushed for primaries was it seemed like it was going to fix some problems in American politics, specifically kind of the the elite corrupt strangle on power. And you have a different narrative about that. So so talk into that, because I think that's one that a lot of listeners, you know, they're going to be more familiar with the, well, we have a primary to keep kind of corrupt elites from controlling the process. You have a, you have a counter narrative there. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think uh, James Madison was not um, you know, a virtuous God by any means. I'm quite critical of him. But he did have this idea that you had to protect the durable institutions of democracy. And one of them was to create filters so that what seemed like a democratic uh, momentum and push uh, would not become an opening for demagogues and selfish factions. And that was the really the way in which um, our democracy was oriented, including political parties. For the first 150 years or so of our country, um, it was only as you get into the progressive era and then later that that idea is abandoned. And instead, we get primaries, which has shifted power to a small number of people who tend to be extremists. This is almost word for word what James Madison worried about, what Herbert Crowley and Walter Littman were worrying about in the 
tens and twenties. Um, so I think the real problem in American democracy are the elites, the governing elites who are in charge. They have squandered the very important institutional apparatus for our democracy. And too often we kind of skip over that and telling tales about, you know, what Donald Trump recently said, or is he going to go to jail or not? Um, yeah, those things are important and I'm not minimizing it, but we need to look more seriously at the history that's brought us to this point and say, we need to have a conversation about how we define and, and operate democracy in America, because it is very bizarre. And when you look abroad, you don't see primaries used uh, the way they are in America. It's, it's really a very peculiar thing in America. I think you make an excellent point. I think oftentimes in kind of the popular conception of things, we always want to see the most the most recent development is somehow new and unmoored from the institutions or the history that came before it, right? But as political scientists, we're always trying to say, well, what was happening? What, what's the institutional framework that leads to this? It's probably not an aberration. It's probably rather a piece of that. And, and in your case, the, the key here is the nomination process and that that we've effectively, as you noted, and you were, I, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I wanted to kind of ask you about, that, and it runs into this, was in your early discussion, you set up this uh, this difference between the framers. The framers, in your view, were kind of the counter-revolutionaries. As a matter of fact, I, I couldn't help but thinking of the presidential scholar Thatch when I was reading your work on here, his book, The Creation of the Presidency, where he talks about... Uh, who we think of as being the framers of the Constitution as being this conservative revolution, right? That they have this uh, desire to minimize some of the elements of democracy that we see at the state level, uh, and then you trace that through uh, Jackson and Jefferson is kind of being the proto example of moving towards that more inclusive, maybe down the wrong path towards democracy. I'd love you to talk in a little bit more about uh, that era as well, since that's the beginning of your book. Yeah, I, I take um, what I hope is a more nuanced view of, of Madison. Um, Madison, without doubt, an extraordinary uh, thinker. Um, you know, he, he was years before the uh, Constitutional Convention met in 1787. He's writing these memos uh, about the direction that the American Constitution should evolve. This is at a point where there is no national government. There are just this kind of you know, confederacy of convenience among separate states. And Madison is very intent on restoring the aristocracy at crushing what he saw as excessive democracy in the states. And by the way, if you're looking for a model of what really robust, progressive uh, democracy might look like, you should look at America in the 1780s. You know, all of a sudden, farmers were jumping off their farms, running for office, getting involved in politics, and then using the electoral wins to pass all sorts of economic redistribution. And it freaked out Madison and, and a group of others. And so Madison gets to the Constitutional Convention, and a very interesting thing happens. He's very committed to tamping down this democracy, but he also has to wrestle with the fact that whatever they draw up in Philadelphia in 1787 is going to have to face a ratification process. And that's when he comes to terms with the need for a system of representation, that is, elections to the House of Representatives, um, the creation of Electoral College, which 
at the time in the late 18th century was seen as as really a compromise with democracy because it allowed voters to have a say. Um, and, you know, a lot of debate about that today. But back in the 18th century, Madison saw it as a big compromise. Um, and Madison had to give up things like he wanted to have the federal government uh, be able to wield a veto over what states did. You can imagine what Joe Biden would be doing right now if he had a veto over what Texas was doing. Um, and that was defeated again with this idea of we've got to face the voters. And so Madison goes in as a counter-revolutionary, but I think the outcome is is more ambiguous um, and can be read in different ways. But as you come out of the early period where you've got the constitutional, the constitution is ratified, George Washington steps in for two terms and is very much a unifier. Um, he really brings together the country and the acrimony around a very intense and close uh, vote on the, on the constitution, the ratification process. But after Washington, then what happens? And his vice president, John Adams, uh, goes on to win a, a fairly close election against Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, though, the vanquished um, loser, uh, decides with Madison to create a, uh, and weaponize a political parties to mobilize voters. And we begin to see mass democracy emerging. It's the first time we really see these mass mobilizing parties shoot ahead to the 1820s, and you've got this thuggish um, Andrew Jackson, who's famous for killing Indians and, and defying law. Um, he also comes to see parties as a way to revenge uh, what I think could be credibly described as the theft of his victory in 1824. He, he like massively expands the voting universe um, up to over a million voters, uh, the threefold increase of over what we had seen in the past. Um, so here's democracy chugging along. And Jackson does something else. He says, because I want the people to have the power, we're going to create party conventions so the people can nominate their presidential candidates. And that's the beginning of a process in America and nowhere else in which our politics are subsumed by the internal operation of political parties. Um, it seemed great in 1832 when Andrew Jackson uh, created and invented the idea of a party convention as a way to give the people power over who would be nominated. It seemed like a great idea at the time and was heralded as you know, Jackson's um, democratic touch. But over the coming decades, corrupt political machines would use that to uh, take over American democracy. And that sets off this uh, dynamic that would uh, spiral American democracy internally inside the parties. And again, this is not something we see in other democracies. The, the attention to the internal political process of parties has come to define um, a lot of our politics and consume a lot of our resources and energy. Other countries, they focus on the battle between the parties. 
Yes. I mean, I mean, so for example, in a, in a parliamentary system, right? I mean, the party itself is even determining which particular individuals are going to be holding the seats, you know, when, when, when you have voting going on. But, you know, to bring it back to the United States, a lot of your argument crests around this idea that although there were some potentially good reasoned pushes for changing and the focus on the party politics in the 1920s. It doesn't move forward because there is a worry from some that it's going to lead to the kinds of outcomes you don't really want. But then we get to Chicago and we and, and we have this kind of pivotal moment where we're going to change the way the Democratic Party is going to do uh, a business and move to a direct primary. So talk just a little bit about you know, that shift there, because that's a key element in your book. Yeah, the, the 1960s is a critical period. Um, and again, up until the 1972 uh, presidential election, control over nomination was held by the leaders of the political parties, elected officials, key interest groups like organized labor, they controlled the nomination. And so you had Hubert Humphrey in 1968 winning the Democratic Party nomination in Chicago without running in a single primary. And this was not unusual in terms of the past. This had been happening uh, for generations. But Humphrey's nomination at that moment, a moment defined by Robert Kennedy's killing, the outrageous um, actions of the Johnson administration in engaging American troops, half a million troops in Southeast Asia on really false pretenses. Um, There was just an explosion at the popular level, particularly in the Democratic Party. And you see that in Chicago with this, you know, police riot, essentially, because Mayor Daley had, had denied the permit requests from protesters to gather and tried to really bully the protesters and succumbing. Protesters didn't, and soon downtown Chicago became a riot zone. You had tanks, you had tear gas. Um, you know, I describe it in vivid detail because it was such an extraordinary moment. Uh, and that was a battle over the nature of American democracy. You had the new left and the um, Students for Democratic Society, or SDS, stepping forward and saying, we need a new democracy. And you get uh, an effort at the very end of this horrible convention that has nominated Hubert Humphrey to appease the protesters. And the idea was the convention was going to approve a commission to study the nomination process. And as far as I can tell, no one thought anything would come of that. It was really just a fig leaf to the protesters to try to appease them and and give them a sense, yes, we're listening to you. Meanwhile, those of us who've kind of studied politics can give you infinite number of cases where commissions are set up precisely to defuse a protest or complaint, and nothing comes of them. This was a moment after 1968 when something very big happens. And, and and that big that big moment is is we're going to at least the, at the start the Democratic Party is going to radically change the balance of power when it comes to who's going to select specifically presidential candidates. Yeah, it's a, it's an extraordinary moment. I just want to say, 
as we go into this chapter section. The Democratic Party certainly had its share of uh, racists in the South. Um, it had its share of power-hungry leaders. But it was also a party that had taken a very strong stand against white segregationists in the South and essentially threw out uh, the Democratic power base in the South. Georgia and other Southern delegations would not come back to the Democratic Party when it insisted that the delegations to the Democratic conventions beginning in 1968 would be integrated. This was an extraordinary step. Also, the Democratic Party is passing these really you know, historic civil rights legislation, um, passing what became the core uh, anchors of American uh, welfare state. So it was a dynamic party at that time. And yet the language about the Democratic Party uh, from those who would come to try to reform it treated that Democratic Party as if it was, you know, the Tammany Hall uh, shucksters operation from, you know, the earlier century. Well, I, yes. And as a matter of fact, I mean, and part of this is, is that the reform movement will lead to an exasperation of racism in the South. As a matter of fact, you even you call this that the primary process is, is your word, quote, the primary process is stained by its deep roots in the South and the establishment of Jim Crow discrimination, end quote. And so although there is this idea that they're going to kind of push back the reforms in your case, they will not only that, but they're going to be stained effectively in racism and hand over the ability to kind of stop uh, 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 enfranchisement when it comes to African-Americans. You know, it's an extraordinary moment uh, in 1870 when the 15th Amendment is passed and uh, black men are given the right to vote. The Southern white racists freak out <laughs> and they come to see the primary that was introduced by the progressive reformers and then stopped as a national movement the white Southerners see it as a savior because they use the primary, the white primary, as a way to select who the white candidate would be and stop the potential that black voters would be selecting their own candidates or perhaps the white vote would split and a black candidate would emerge. So here is the primary that the reformers introduced in the early 20th century. It's blocked as a national movement, but the South picks it up as a way to ensure that racist candidates would prevail. And it persists for decades and decades. Yeah, I, I thought that was a, it's a really good point when you're thinking institutionally to say, you know, the, the, the major institutionalized racism occurs inside of that primary system. And yet that then is the process that we make national as we move forward into the into the late 1960s. Yeah. And, you know, just to jump ahead to our own time, um, we're seeing, you know, increasing attention to the fact that the first two primaries caucuses in Iowa and New Hampshire are not representative of the country and certainly not representative of the diversity of the Democratic Party. Um, and some have described this as, well, you know, we just we have to take care of that. Whereas I would argue it's endemic to the Democratic Party. Uh, the whole nomination process is stained by this deep uh, history of being the tool of white segregationists. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful argument. Now, I, I, I like that you're bringing us forward, and I want to bring us forward, too, because you then move forward and basically say, well, look, what are from the right and the left? You point to Donald Trump, you point to Bernie Sanders, and you say, look, both of these individuals, part of their attack is that the nomination process is corrupt and therefore we you know we need to have a a better process i.e a more democratic process at the primary level but your argument effectively is is that it's never going to move in that direction because the primary process itself is unrepresentative uh, as you put it you know neither on voting or in contacting government representatives or any other kind of political activity it's disproportional those who are going to be involved in the primary so although that's the language that's not really what's happening so so talk into this attack by the trump and the bernie side in the most recent elections yeah i mean i think the very phrase democracy is so deformed in America that it really has little resemblance to, I think, the core principles of democracy, which I would say emanate from the Declaration of Independence, which talks about um, all men are created equal, that there is an unalienable rights, and among those rights are the consent of the governed. Um, and this has been interpreted as each vote counts equally. Well, that's not what happens with the primary elections. When Bernie Sanders is talking about um, making it easier for his supporters to vote for him, he's not talking about mass democracy. He's talking about creating a uh, simpler way for his supporters to have more influence. And that was what Donald Trump was saying as well. So you get these small clusters of party activists or um, or you know, movements around various ideological agendas who want to kind of storm the nomination process for their candidate, for their agenda. That's not equal power for everybody. That's power for a small number. And it's how we ended up with Donald Trump, even though he was vastly unpopular in 2016, even though you had almost the entire Republican leadership saying he was unfit for office. Um, and if you look at, you know, the support for him in the primary, um, it was only about 6% of the entire electorate that supported him. And yet you get to election day and because we're so polarized, Republicans unified, you know, more than nine out of 10, uh, behind the Republican party candidate as the, the Democrats behind their candidate, even though neither candidate was really enjoyed popular support, especially Donald Trump. So this idea that, um, you know, that Bernie and Trump uh, pushed that making it easier for their supporters to have more influence would be more democratic, it's nonsense. It's, it's this really deformed idea of democracy that exists in America and no other democracy. Yeah. So effectively, what we have is, is you, you have individuals today pushing for an ease of primary vote that leads to very specifically and only very specifically certain kinds of individuals being involved in those primaries, which therefore then lead, is in, in your argument, both to Trump, 
but also to heightened partisan polarization because we end up having to then we're backing the individual who really doesn't have even a majority of his own party's vote in the case of Trump. I mean, you go through you go through that in the book as well. So you also see this as leading to party polarization. Talk into that as well. Yeah, I mean, here's an example. Um, AOC uh, won nomination against a very prominent uh, uh, Democrat in her in the Queens district. The turnout among Democrats in that very important primary race was 12 percent. So AOC won with 12 percent turnout, and it was a closed primary. Now, she reflect that entire district? No. Does she reflect the entire Democratic Party? I don't know. Uh, but it's certainly the case that a relatively small number of Democrats who were mobilized by, you know, the um, justice Democrats and other advocates turned out in large numbers for AOC, who is now in Congress leading, you know, I would describe as the ultra progressive wing of the party and in some cases uh, obstructing even the Democratic Party's agenda. That's what's happened. It's more so on the Republican side. Uh, If you go back and you look at the Tea Party's rise in 2010, which in some ways anticipates the rise of Donald Trump and the shift to the right in the Republican Party, many of those Tea Party races turn out was 12 to 15 percent. Again, very conservative, not a reflection of the the Republican Party as a whole um, and not a reflection of the country. But you get to the general election and the parties are so sorted that basically you get 90% or more of Democrats and Republicans voting for the nominated candidates, even though they disagree with uh, some of their policies. Because they're so entrenched. Uh, and, th- and this is something that we recognize in the literature and you point out in the book. Partisan ID is such a major predictor of how one's going to vote that even if somebody is not a lot like you in the case of either for Donald Trump, you're still going to vote for them because you're going to perceive that as better than a vote for the evil other guy. Yes. And we're we've got now a social media um, structure. Um, we've got you know, Fox TV and MSNBC um, and and other sorts of mechanisms that are reinforcing um, those affiliations with one party or another. It's also creating and reinforcing misperceptions of uh, each party, uh, hatred even of the other party. Um, And so we are now locked in. I would argue that there are many factors that have contributed to the hateful polarization we have to now. But the advent of mass uh, primaries created the institutional structure and framework in which all of that could, uh, could kind of boil away in a very toxic manner. You know, one of the other elements that went in here, and you didn't get into this in your book, although you seem to kind of bump up next to it, so I was curious what you thought, was there's argument in political communication that effectively when we move to the direct primary, one of the uh, those who, who gain some advantage in that system is the media process, that the media becomes effectively the kingmaker. But of course, today, the media itself is not seen as a particularly valuable institution. We can kind of democratize information. I was wondering what you thought about how does political communication play a story into this? Obviously, that would be beyond the scope of your book, but I was curious if you had thought about that as you had been writing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've done research with colleagues, including uh, Bob Shapiro at Columbia, looking at just these sort of communications effects. Um, and what's happened is as the primary system individualized elections, detached it from political parties, it is it has created a space for individualized communications and also for activists um, on the left and the right to use what is relatively inexpensive uh, tools of social media to add their communicative uh, slant to things. And again, I think that one of the big challenges here is the reinforcing of partisan biases, uh, misperceptions, um, and and even hate. Um, so I think it's as we've individualized the election process because of primaries, it's allowed this much more individualized and focused uh, effort and part of communications that's driven by the activists. Now, I mean, obviously, you're, you're building the book to the what do we do? And I want to get there in just a moment. Before we get there, though, I think sometimes you really have to see things in a particular light. As you get to the end of the book, you may you you effectively say, look, the exactly you say that the the robust adoption of primaries in the 1970s is responsible for the rise of uh, Trump, despite clear indications before his nomination of repudiating American democratic rules, procedures, and norms. So effectively, you know, we're even willing because of the of, of the institutional primary function, we're going to vote for individuals who are actually going to overthrow the democratic process because we want to advance the democratic process. You know, that's both a bold and a scary claim, right? All in 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 one go. What do you see so if if we don't make any kind of changes. So before we get to the changes, if we don't make any kind of changes, do you think we're going to continue to see, I, I can imagine listeners going, well, but are we always going to get Trump's or was, you know, is it always going to be these guys who are going to throw away the democratic rules or was that just a one off? Talk into that just a little bit, please. Oh, I think it gets, you know, it continues this way or maybe it gets worse. Uh, and we don't have to speculate about this. Look at, you know, particularly the Republican party who they're nominating. Um, or in the process of nominating. And I think maybe the most egregious cases are some of these secretary of states uh, who appear to be positioned uh, to be the nominees of Republican parties who have a declared position that the 2020 election was stolen, even though the results were certified, even though you've had more than 90 judges, including judges who were nominated by Donald Trump and other Republicans, weigh in and saying, yes, this was done properly. Those secretary of state potential nominees are coming forward. How are they going to use their power um, to uh, circumvent, maybe undermine the fair counting of, of votes or the the fair allowing of voters to cast ballots. I mean, I'm very concerned about this. And you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is we've gone back and forth for millennia, actually, over um, whether democracy can survive. And one of the main criticisms going back to Plato is you can't trust the everyday person. They don't know anything, and um, their values are really screwed up. Um, and they don't, they don't do their homework. Can't trust them. Instead, you got to trust what Plato and others refer to as the guardians, um, who you know, were virtuous, had a lot of knowledge, 
uh, and we're committed to the common good. Well, I don't really see that as as a fair characterization of what's going on now. I think voters are very busy, but we've seen studies and research that voters will step up um, when they're given an opportunity to actually have influence and a fair process. But we have seen, and we see it with the adoption of the primaries, both back a century ago in the 1970s, um, and the behavior of Republicans uh, with regards to following Trump um, and trying to overthrow the 2020 election. It's the elites. It's the governing elites who are abandoning their posts. They are um, becoming the threat to American democracy. So, so yes, I think it, it looks like a weird paradox uh, that we're going to be electing people who may well undermine democracy. But I would say that's because the governing elites and the decisions they've made about our institutions um, have been um, you know, distorted by their own ambition rather than informed by their sense of values and commitment to American democracy and the Constitution. I want to drill in onto that because if there was one part of the book where I was just, just going, yes, somebody said it, you know, to an audience. And that was, you were talking about the critique here and saying, you know, the classic tr- critique is effectively that you can't trust uh, citizens to vote uh, because they don't have the time, the morality, the inclination. And, and you turn that on, your, on its head in a beautiful way and say, effectively, the problem is, is that our institutional structure is such that we overcall on them so that they can't actually possibly be meaningful uh, participants. You know, we have elections all the time, and so there's too many and not fewer but more meaningful. As a matter of fact, you talk about how in many countries, and this is true, for example, in the United Kingdom, where you you might not have an election for four years, five years. We're going to do that all the time. I couldn't help but thinking I was involved in a, uh, I was helping a, a friend run for a school board position here in Oklahoma, you know, and so there is a primary election uh, early in the year, but it's it's the top two, then move on to the next part of the primary, who then move on to, you know, the full election, unless somebody gets X more percentage of the vote, but of course nobody does. And so for just for the school board election, uh, you were going to have to come out and vote potentially three times, right? And that's just for the school board. You make that case, and I thought that was such an effective one. Talk a little bit about this idea that, again, it seems to be rooted in the 1920s of, hey, could we, let's have fewer but more meaningful elections. Yeah, no, this is an extraordinary thing about America. Um, We're trying to count up how many elections we have. Uh, We came up with over half a million um, this is municipal, local, state, federal elections. It includes both the general election in November, but also um, the primaries, and in some cases, the runoff uh, primaries or runoff general elections. Um, it's absolutely, it's exhausting. Um, just counting all those elections was exhausting. <laughs> and uh, my research assistant and I were just like, um, just floored by, by the magnitude of this. And in other countries, there's a fraction. Um, you know, in Germany, you might have six or eight elections over a four-year period. Um, and, you know, I think it's a pretty healthy democracy. And Germany, we just had a very significant election that made some big changes. Um, but the idea is we're going to focus our elections on the big, important things. Um, and we're going to accept that political parties are going to have 
sway. They are part of the representative democratic process. Um, and if the parties screw up, then they're going to suffer at the polls. But most parties are looking at the, general, the next election and thinking, how are we going to maintain or get the majority? And that means swinging towards the midpoint of public opinion, rather than what's going on now in the Democratic and Republican parties, where they're actually often discounting where most Americans are and heading for the extremes, because those are the people who turn out and vote in the primaries. Those are the 12%. Off. Those are those the 12%. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think, you know, we need to take a hard look at the number of elections. We need to be, you know, realistic about this. And there may be a lot of elections where we just cancel them. I mean, we've got, you know, municipal elections, town hall elections in small towns in Minnesota where, you know, it's literally dozen people or so showing up. It's it's ridiculous. And why is that a concern? Because first off, it's a lot to ask people to vote. And it's not a trivial thing. If you're going to cast a meaningful vote, you have to know who the candidates are. You have to know their positions and you have to know the positions of the other candidates. And then you got to figure out where to vote and when to vote. Um, and if you're doing that a half a million times, forget it. You're just going to opt out. And that's what's happening in America. You get the 12% turnout in AOC's uh, first primary. You get you know, this ridiculous a quarter to a third of Democrats and Republicans turning out for presidential election year primaries. It's, it, it, it's not democracy. It's something very different. And we've got to be honest about it. Now, another element, you, you don't address this, but I had been wondering about it as I was reading and getting deeper into the book was, you know, you make these comparisons and you're doing it again right here for other countries overseas. But one of the things that makes us unique from, say, um, many other democracies is, is our embrace of federalism. And so I hear in, your, in this critique of too many elections, the possibility that we're already going to tend in that way because, okay, we're voting for president, we're voting for senators, we're voting for a house member. But then we're also going to have this plethora that, uh, that you guys were, were, were counting up for state and local elections as well, right? We have these layers uh, of government. Do you see federalism as, as potentially having this kind of flaw already baked in? Or is that something that's really more enhanced, more recent? I had what, you hadn't really addressed that in the book, and I was curious about your thoughts on how federalism interacts with this phenomenon. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think uh, federalism no doubt might increase the number of elections a bit, uh, governor, for instance. Um, but, you know, Germany has got, um, you know, federal system. Um, in England, uh, there's, you know, a, a tiny fraction of our elections, but there have been more elections in, in England over the last, or I'm sorry, the United Kingdom over the last um, decade or so because there are more municipal elections going on. But how do you get to half a million? I mean, that's just, that is a scale that is just mind boggling. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone can defend it, particularly when you start looking at many of these elections where there's you know, so few people turning out, but we've got this really deformed idea of democracy in which, you know, voting is somehow the savior without looking at, is anyone turning out? Who is turning out? And among that tiny number, who do they represent? And the truth is, those folks don't represent the country. 
Okay, so let's get into the the end of your book, which is when you move to that next phase. And this is always a hard one, which is, well, so 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 what do we do, right? What do we do next? I really did love you at, at the end there, I think it's page 190, you have the section, get real. Effectively, like, you know, there's all kinds of things you might think, hey, let's just, let's just, I'm a, I almost felt like it was a a, a little bit of a, a, a pun towards Trump's, you know, let's make uh, America better again. You know, you can't necessarily just turn back the clock is what you say. Look, we've got to get real. What, what can we actually make some changes on? So for listeners, what are the things that could make this better? What are the tangible changes we could make uh, to the American primary system? Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way, because I think, you know, a lot of the folks I interact with and talk to who are you know, very well-meaning and earnest and whose reformist spirit is going to be the, the key to America's future. Um, but, you know, things like ranked choice voting, very popular. Um, and I've done research on this with a colleague and, you know, it's kind of the same deal. We're seeing that the people who are turning out for ranked choice voting and using all of their options to cast ballots, they represent the more affluent, the whiter voter, um, the better educated voter and lots of voters don't participate or if they do participate, they don't take advantage of the the kind of really special feature of ranked choice voting and be able to cast multiple uh, candidate preferences. So I'm not a big fan of ranked choice voting. I think it's just going to reinforce the political inequality that we have today, um, despite some strengths on it. You know, getting rid of the Electoral College, it's it's almost like a give me. Uh, for those of us who write textbooks or want to talk about reform, it's never going to happen. Yeah, um, and I, so I, what, I'm with you. I get I get tired sometimes of academics saying, "Well, we could just change this," and then thinking, "Yeah, I mean, we could, but we're not." <laughs> you know, what could we really do? I'm sorry. Continue, continue. Yeah, and and you know, I think if we get money out of politics, I wish we could. I think it's outrageous, um, and I've done studies on. It. I think it's outrageous, and I'm convinced it has a corrupting effect. No, but could we create a process in which money is not as important as today? And then the primary process where, you know, each candidate is their own world. <laughs> you know, they're mm-hmm. not tethered to a political party. Money has particular importance. Um, again, if you look abroad, money's there, but not in the magnitude. It's not raised in the really corrupting way it is raised in America, and it has less influence. I've done a a book and and some research on uh, central banks, and interviewing you know all sorts of European central bankers, and I would ask about well, what's the role of money in the elections or the pressure you're hearing from your parliament. I would get a stunned look, like what are you talking about? No, that would be totally wrong. Whereas <laughs> in America, it's it's part of the the process because everything is so loose and the parties are such an ineffective uh, check. So yes, let's clear away what I would consider to be, you know, good sounding, but ineffective uh, waste of time ideas. I think we need to be concrete and we need to be realistic. And that's why one of the ideas I've floating here is let's do an audit of all our elections. Let's, let's whack away the elections where no one has shown up and so that voters can focus on the meaningful, decisive elections rather than on, um, you know, these really ineffectual, uh, no turnout affairs. Um, you know, I think we also need to have a more serious conversation about the um, special superdelegates 
in the Democratic Party and the unpledged delegates in the Republican Party. Bernie and Trump have slashed these, saying that this is undemocratic. And again, I see them as kind of peer review. You know, these are the folks who are actually in office, who are helping to run the political parties. And we want their judgments as part of this. If they see a candidate moving forward like Donald Trump, who is, you know, as he was running in the primaries, was saying he might not abide by the outcome, whose views about the Constitution were clearly immature or hostile, um, to have, have some uh, recourse so that the political party could step in. Um, and we don't have that. But again, a lot of that conversation and the dismissal of the idea of superdelegates super and unpledged delega delegates is tarnished by this really deformed notion of democracy, that, that the primary process is democracy. It is not. It is profoundly undemocratic. It is, it is generating political inequality um, and is a threat to the survival of American democracy. You know, I like that you talk about the superdelegates because one of the things in the back of my mind as I was reading this was the counter that that's going to be for you. I could just kind of envision it. Well, look, you know, the truth here is, is if we didn't have superdelegates, then we wouldn't have these entrenched Clintonites. We wouldn't have had Hillary. We would have had Bernie and Bernie could have could have knocked off Trump. I, I, I can see that kind of argument, especially from the left saying, I mean, I get that you're upset with having this many elections, but that's what democracy is about. You know, we've got to sit down and talk even more, not less. How do you respond to that in in because I like the idea of like, hey, let, let's audit elections and let's slash that. How do you sell that? And I'm thinking especially to those on the left where I think you're probably going to have maybe some of the, the bigger pushback. Yeah, I think certainly the left is not a big fan of of my arguments, and no, <laughs> we've, kind of, we've gone after me a few times already. Um, but you know, I don't. I think the whole point here is that the left shouldn't be calling the shots. I'm impressed by the number of of reform movements, whether it's you know no labels. I think rank choice voting, the folks who are supporting that, you know, good soul people who care about our country. And I see a kind of nascent movement of people who are really worried about our democracy and are fighting for it. We had record voter turnout in 2020. The energy is there. It's just the agenda is so deformed. It's so lopsided. And it has not really gotten a scrutiny that it deserves. So on your, your point, yeah, I think... You know, would Hillary Clinton been nominated in, in 2016? Probably. Um, but, you know, you look at Hillary Clinton's, um, she's probably the most qualified candidate maybe in our history or since Thomas Jefferson. I mean, she's an extraordinary record. Um, a lot happened in that election that was not related to Hillary Clinton, um, though I don't think she ran a great campaign. You know, if you look Geeks like us who study politics and elections will tell you there are a lot of these kind of structural features in terms of the environment that play a factor. And there were a group of, of political scientists who were anticipating that, that the Republicans would win because the economy was not doing well, because there was a real sense the country was heading in the right direction. And once you get to the general election, it didn't really matter as much as most people assume who the candidates were. 
You know, that is an excellent point when you're when you're talking about institutional changes. I think we oftentimes forget that's not the only effect. I mean, you know, because we spend so much time on campaigns and we spend so much time at individual campaigning, it can be really easy for the average voter or the or a listener to say, "Man, that must explain like ninety eight percent of the variance, right?" And and it, and, it, and it simply doesn't. There's all of these other structural variables that explain a lot of how how votes are going to predict. I mean, we're coming up uh, on midterm elections, and we know for the fact. You know, no matter what else happens, it's going to be a difficult time for Democrats because there's a Democratic president. Yeah, exactly. Um, and once we get into that mindset, then we can start asking these broader questions. Um, and to me, the most important, again, is we have to take a look at um, this this kind of uh, leaky um, process we have. Donald Trump may well be the nominee in 2024. We may well see, if it's not Donald Trump, someone who's more gifted at the anti-constitutional, um, you know, racial nationalism that he's promoting. Um, and folks who know better in the Republican Party and worry about our country, they have no, no ability to kind of steer um, that nomination process. And, you know, we could see uh, candidates coming from the far left in the Democratic Party. Um, as you say, you know, they're well organized and they've got they've got potent arguments. Um, that's that's my concern. We've really got to get much more serious about the durable institutions of our democratic um, rules and procedures. They are they are really precious to us and we've neglected them. So it seems that the the big item takeaway for listeners say, look, the biggest thing we could do is to have an audit to bring down these votes and to rethink about how many votes we're having. But kind of like when we're thinking about, uh, you know, climate change, I oftentimes wonder, you know, you're making kind of a... a, a there There's urgency to your book and there's an urgency to the end here. I mean, what, what's in your view then the timeline that we have to do this kind of audit, to make this kind of change to the primary before we could have irreparable harm to our democratic institutions? I mean, if you're concerned about Donald Trump being the nominee in 2024, which I think is reasonable, mm-hmm. then you need to get on your horse right now. <laughs> And start riding because that is there's nothing to stop him from running. And if you look at the polls, it looks like he's got 30 to 40 percent of the hardcore uh, Republican Party activists who will be behind him. If it's a competitive field of you know seven or eight or nine candidates, he could again prevail. I see no reason why that wouldn't happen, even if he's indicted. Um, mm-hmm. And and that and you know I know I've talked to a lot of people about this and you know one reaction i get with when i'm out talking in the community is well that's crazy that shouldn't happen like okay that may be true it may be crazy and maybe it shouldn't happen but what is it in our process that will stop it and the answer is nothing the process is the same as 2016 donald trump is in a stronger position it's entirely possible he will be the nominee of the republican party and who knows you know, what's going to be going on the Democratic Party side or where the economy will be in 2024. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll never get in, in uh, the run up to Donald Trump's uh, election. You're talking about talking to people in the community. And I was invited to speak uh, at this group and, and made the prediction that Donald Trump was going to win the election for a number of reasons and was permanently disinvited uh, from ever <laughs> being involved again. Because, right, that's just crazy. That can't happen. It, it, it can't happen. You can't. That can't happen. And, and of course, things can't happen until, of course, they do. And, you know, I think, you know, another kind of uh, takeaway, I would say, is we need to be a lot more critical of um, our governing elites. And I know there's a kind of a skepticism, but I'm talking about something much deeper. Um, And that includes, you know, some of our colleagues who continue to abide by this Plato-like idea that, you know, citizens are just too stupid to, to really make decisions. The problem is, uh, we need institutions that are going to check and restrain governing elites. Um, one of the parts of the book I spent a lot of time is, well, why were the primaries unleashed um, in the early 1970s? And, you know, it's a story in which good Democratic liberal George McGovern, uh, combined with another Democrat named Fred Harris, to ditch the party because they were looking for a way to create their own avenue into the presidential election. And, you know, all the Madisonian concerns about creating filters, um, ensuring that there's a process that would not invite demagogues, all that was never considered. I mean, I couldn't find any mention of it. And in my view, that's shameful. That's interesting. I, you know, I had not latched onto that in the, in the book, but that's a, that's a fascinating take. So any last thing for our listeners, Larry? I am a big believer in democracy in America. I'm not in any way uh, casting aspersions on it. And I think the explosion of, um, of our democracy in 2020 with so many record number of people voting despite COVID, the continual resurgence of our democracy over time, including, you know, in these very early years in the 1780s, and then um, with the revolution in democracy that Thomas Jefferson leads, and then Andrew Jackson, the civil rights movement, um, America's got tremendous reservoir of civic uh, engagement and a passion for our democracy. We need to tap into that. We need to do some hard thinking about some of the patterns we've fallen into because they are dangerous and I think they're a dire threat. Thank you so much, Larry. And again, thank you so much for uh, joining us on The Politics, guys. It's great. And, and Trey, keep up the good work. You, this is a, appreciate. Really, this I appreciate. a really great program. Thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate that. I, I love having, having you on. We've been talking with Lawrence Jacobs, Larry Jacobs, and his new book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump, and the breaking of an American history of American history. And you will be able to have a link to that in the show notes. And again, you should definitely give a shout out. Uh, say your wife's name one more time, because I just love this cover so much, Larry. <laughs> Julie Schumacher, S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R. And probably the most popular book is called Dear Committee Members. And Trey, it's, it's about uh, faculty writing letters of recommendation that have no meaning. <laughs> 
Okay, so now you've blown my weekend now. I know what I'm going to have to do. Uh, so maybe next time we'll have to... No, I tease with the, the Wimpy Our thing. But I, I, again, I'll let her know I deeply. I love this cover. I, I just absolutely love it. I love it. And I've loved having a chance talking with you. Uh, listeners, thank you guys so much for joining us with this conversation. If you've got any questions, comments, or corrections, or just want to share a random thought, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.